entering the Freedom Hut. Hillary as a possible VP for Mike Bloomberg. Oh, gosh, we'll get into that. Plus, Trump takes the beast for a Daytona lap. He's not tired of winning yet. Bloomberg says some stuff about farmers. There's a war on milk that you should all be aware of. A.G. Barr is getting heat from people who say he must resign. And liberals have a tough time being friends with conservatives. That and more on this special President's Day show. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Happy President's Day. Hopefully at least a good portion of you listening to this have the day off or perhaps you're able to at least go into the office and not worry about Lumberg tapping you on the shoulder and wondering where your TPS reports are. You know, you know what I mean? That's never fun. At least on holidays, you can sometimes go in and realize what would work be like? What would the office be like if there weren't a whole bunch of people who were paid to just harass other people doing actual work under the headline or the, the story of management, you know? Like you can just go in and do things on holidays, and you can still do the things that you normally do, but you don't have someone come up and tapping you and saying, yeah, I'm going to need you to come in on a Saturday, and yeah, I'm going to need you to come in on Sunday. Nope. On a holiday, you get to just show, show up, do your stuff. President's Day initially all about George Washington, then they expanded it a bit. It was uh, 1885 when they first got this thing going. It's not the most exciting holiday. There's no fun tradition, and really... I feel like it's a little bit of a trap. Like, people ask me, do you want to take President's Day off? And I say, well, I would perhaps like to. But then it's like, oh, how dedicated are you really to doing the best radio show that anyone could ever possibly do? And you say, oh, I'm sorry, of course, President's Day. I will work. I will not do one. I will do two shows on President's Day, Producer Brandon, because that is the kind of dedication that I bring to this. I hope you all had a fantastic weekend. I'll tell you more about my weekend later on. It was great. There were some culinary adventures some other good things going on. Uh, But uh, we have some interesting news to get to today. Uh, Let's start with the Bloomberg factor. You got to take this guy seriously, folks. Uh, There's a real possibility here that he, if not, if he will not himself be the Democrat nominee, he is shaking up this race. I'm a little bummed about it, to be honest with you, because I really want Bernie to be the candidate. I think we're much better off if Bernie Sanders is the guy. I want there to be a socialism versus capitalism choice in the 2020 election. And I want the Democratic Party, which has been playing footsie with the left for a long time now. They, they've been toying with this. They've been, uh, you know, with the far left, I mean, with, with socialism, open socialism. I want them to have to accept that reality, to have to defend that position. They're no longer be in a place where they feel like they can pretend that they're not a socialist party because they are a socialist party. So that's my my first uh, sense of why Bloomberg getting involved is a little bit of a disappointment for me because he's he's a liberal but he's the he's the in a sense the ultimate establishment liberal, not of the political establishment but of the elites. I mean, how do you get more elite than being the former mayor of the biggest city, I think three-term mayor of the biggest city in the country? That's the bluest, biggest city in the country. I mean, the, the, the center of so much Democrat Party 
activism and power. Maybe it's not technically the bluest by percentage, but you know what I'm saying. The center of gravity of much of the Democratic Party is here in New York City. The guy's worth, let's call it $50 billion. I keep hearing different. I don't think anyone can really, because it's a private company. The sale of a private company is a difficult thing at that level to really estimate. I mean, who would be the buyer for it? But he's got his own media entity, Bloomberg News. It's very well funded. And he's just changing things up. But he's as much an elite establishment figure as you could find anywhere. And he is going to be fighting a war against Bernie Sanders internally in the Democratic Party. That's what's ha- that's what's happening. Now, there's some interesting things that came out of the weekend about Bloomberg. And he's certainly someone we'll be talking about. The basic strategy that he's engaged in also makes a lot of sense to me because you have these candidates who are fighting it out with each other for uh, winning these early states. So we've already had Iowa, the debacle in Iowa. Does the app work? And then we've had New Hampshire. We're about to have Nevada this weekend. Then we have South Carolina, which is Joe Biden's firewall. That's where he's supposed to have a really strong showing. And then you get to Super Tuesday when you have all these huge, uh, huge states, a whole bunch of them all at once, deciding who the Democrat nominee should be. Bloomberg is just going for Super Tuesday. He's not messing with any of this early stuff. And he's assuming that he's going to be able to just buy. He already has really bought enough attention for himself that he's a national third place finisher in a lot of the polls, which is pretty astonishing. And he's assuming that he can just launch to the front of the pack on Super Tuesday when states like California, for example, decide who their primary uh, who their primary victor will be or, or how many, depending on some states, you know, you get a proportional number of delegates and all these different rules. So Bloomberg is somebody we have to take seriously. And he's able to buy some of the best in the game. He can pay so much more. He will pay so much more than other people that the old rules about... See, what Trump was able to do was find a way to essentially harness media narrative and attention using little to no money. And, you know, that, that was his special skill. Trump came along and it was, I'm going to dominate the news cycle. I'm going to be so different and charismatic and energetic when I do these live events that even CNN will just run my events live on their air for free because people want to see it. Trump understood the entertainment value uh, that he brings. He He understood that Politics is increasingly spectacle. You think about what a presidential contest would have been like 100 years ago. People didn't even really know what the president looked like. You know, I mean, people would just be like, all right. I mean, I, I read in the newspaper about this platform and that guy's at that platform and there's some word of mouth. But, you know, you don't have I mean, right now I can open my phone and see what Trump has tweeted in the last hour. A constant TV and, uh, you know, those all this video of him all the time and, and all these other politi- uh, political candidates, too. Trump understood, though, how to get the the focus on him and how to get earned media, essentially, how to get earned attention uh, from without paying for it. And then you get to Bloomberg. Now, Bloomberg is the opposite of Trump in many ways because he's not interesting or charismatic as a speaker. He's just not. He's not a guy, you know, he's like, you know, he sort of... He sort of sits a little bit down like he's just bored all the time. And he's like, you know, I don't really want to have to explain to you poor people, which is pretty much everybody compared to me because I'm so rich. You know, just let me be in charge and it'll all be okay, and we'll be fine. And that's kind of his that's the way that he talks to people is not charismatic. It's not compelling. 
But all of a sudden, I mean, producer Brandon, I think you'd agree. You know, if, if I sat down and I said, producer Brandon, I want to lecture you about your whole life and tell you what size sodas you can drink and everything else, you'd be like, Buck, this isn't amazing. But if I sat down and before I wanted to lecture you about how large a soda you can drink and I slid an envelope across the table to you with, uh, you know, about uh, a dozen or so crisp $100 bills, I feel like you give me more leeway in my lecture now. I think so. You know? You're right in that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you're probably like, yeah, Buck. Tell me what tell me what size soda I can drink. Well, I'm waving more uh, my hand at you. Yeah, exactly. More. Like you want the second envelope, you know, that's But this is the way this is the way of the world. So Trump was able to say, "Look at me, look at me. I'm doing this amazing speech and I have all this enthusiasm. I'm saying things that people want to hear and they haven't heard before and I'm compelling and it's vivacious. It's a word I haven't used in a long time. Stuff like that. And Bloomberg's like, I'm boring and I'm lecturing and I don't connect with you, but who wants a million dollars? And everyone's like, oh, this is amazing. (laughs) This is fantastic. So this is a a new thing in American politics. This is a, a different situation. We've never seen this happen before. I also think it's fascinating to watch so many establishment Democrats who have been complaining about uh, I've been complaining about the undermining of our democracy and money and politics. We always hear about money and politics. And now the ultimate test of money and politics is Mike Bloomberg. I mean, he is he is trying to just spend his way into the Oval spend personal. Before, it was money that comes from other people. So the, the idea is that you would at least be somewhat responsive. You'd be responsible to those people for taking those donations at some level. I mean, a lot of politicians... Say they'll do one thing and then they don't do it and they take your money. But Bloomberg is just saying, I don't, I don't even care. Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend my money on everything. This is new. This is a test of what the Democrats have been saying all along about how they don't like money in politics. But they also, I think, many of the establishment figures understand that Bloomberg might be saving them from a political suicide mission of a Bernie Sanders campaign running up against Trump, and this could be. Mondale-like in how crushed the Bernie Sanders campaign ends up being. I mean, I think you can make a case that any state that is a toss-up, any state that is in contention could very well go against Bernie Sanders for Donald Trump, every single one of them. I think Trump could run the table of purple states, effectively, or states where there's a realistic chance of one side or the other winning. Because you still, you know, Bernie Sanders, doesn't matter, you could run you could run generic Democrat. Doesn't even you don't have to know the person's name. A generic Democrat would win in California and New York and these places against Trump, and anywhere where it's close. And that then brings me to the big news over the weekend. The big news over the weekend was the possibility of hello coming back into the campaign, into this political world we're talking about. That's right, my friends. Is Hillary Clinton a serious consideration for Mike Bloomberg as an as a VP candidate. What are the dynamics here? Is this for real? We'll walk through that together. And then how would this change things? How would this change the race? Oh my. Things are things are heating up. Things are getting spicy. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Regardless of how much money a multi-billionaire candidate is willing to spend on his election, we will not create the energy and excitement we need to defeat Donald Trump. 
if that candidate pursued, advocated for, and enacted racist policies like stop and frisk, which caused communities of color in his city to live in fear. You can't buy enthusiasm, but can you buy the presidency anyway? That's a fair question. And by the way, I think you can buy enthusiasm. Going back to my analogy with producer Brandon here, you give someone enough money, all of a sudden they're really enthusiastic about whatever you want them to be enthusiastic about. So does it mean you can buy enthusiasm among the voters? Maybe not. But among the political apparatus, among individual influencers, people that are able to move minds, shift opinions, can you buy their enthusiasm? I think the answer is probably yes. But more to the point here, what is the missing piece for Bloomberg? There's a why. He, he brings the money and a technical know-how. There's all this reporting about how he has a very uh, technical approach to how to run a campaign. He's hiring the smartest people to run all the polls, to crunch all the numbers. You know, he's doing, he's doing money ball, but with an unlimited budget, right? So he's crunching all the numbers to make his decisions, but also he doesn't have to worry about the economics of this. He can just spend the money. But he's looking for the maximum efficiency that he can get. And that's where the possibility of a Hillary Clinton campaign has come up. Over the weekend, Drudge reporting on this. Everyone's, oh my gosh, Hillary Clinton could in fact be the vice president uh, under a Michael Bloomberg administration. And here's what I'll say about this. It answers the why question a bit for a lot of Democrats. Hillary Clinton, a a lot of the left still believes she won the 2016 election because she won the popular vote, even though that's not the contest that is being run, they still think that. They they tell themselves, well, even though that's not really the way it is, we're going to pretend that's the way that it is because we want to think that Hillary won. They also believe the only way, the left believes the only way to make 2016 right would be to have the first woman president, or I guess in this case, it'd have to be the first woman vice president. But Bloomberg is is so old, he's 78, that you'd have to think he'd be willing to say he's a one-termer. And then Hillary would still be old, but perhaps you get the first Hillary term and he does this handoff to her. And you'd have a, you know, you'd have this promise of a technocratic return to, a technocratic government return to normalcy. But Hillary becomes the, the rallying cry for the left wing, uh, for the, I shouldn't say left wing, for the Democrat base. Bernie has the left wing base. And I don't know if you can get them to come along against Trump in this scenario. I don't know who they hate more, really. Do Bernie's, do Bernie supporters hate Bloomberg more or Hillary more? It's a tough call. They don't like either of them. But putting Hillary even in the mix, and I do believe that they're, they've, they've run internal polls, but they've also put this out there in public so that people can now make their own, people can talk about this and they're going to see what the feeling of the Democrat primary voters out there, what, what their feelings are on this. I think it makes a lot of sense from the Democrat side. I really do. You know Hillary's, she's waiting there like, I'm ready. She's just, the moment that you give Hillary an inch, she will jump into this thing. If there's any opening, I, I know that Hillary Clinton still wants this. This is what she still gives these interviews where she says, oh, you know, I'm not I'm not interested in running today, but maybe tomorrow. You know, she, it's all it's all quite obvious that if there was an opening for Hillary, uh, she would take it. If there was any chance 
that Hillary Clinton was able to uh, be in the mix for a presidential campaign again, she'd go for it. Bloomberg says he's a one-termer. It gets the Democrat mindset enthusiastic. Remember, enthusiasm, a thing Bloomberg can't buy. It gets the Democrats enthusiastic because it feels like revenge for 2016 to have Hillary involved here. You got Bloomberg's dollars, Hillary's Democrat apparatus. And, and don't don't forget that, you know, if she had run a better can, she's a bad politician who ran a bad campaign, but she still is, is somebody with basically universal name recognition among Democrats. She's female, which we know the Democrats are very strong believers in having a Democrat female first president. If it was a Republican female, that, that if you're a Republican, being female in politics doesn't count. You got to be a Democrat. But she brings a lot of pieces together. I, I know right now this is a bit of speculation. It's not clear if this is even going to happen. We have to see if on Super Tuesday, Bloomberg does end up a top contender. Then this does become a real conversation. Uh, and it can become an even bigger conversation about a vice presidential slot than it normally is, because you've got to assume Bloomberg's going to say one term and I'm done. This is really Bloomberg. I don't even think really wants to be president that badly. I think that he just wants to make sure Trump is not president. So in that scenario, he's perfectly placed to be a guy who comes in, and says, I'm just going to do four years. Hillary's going to be super involved in domestic policy. And she's going to be you know, enacting a lot of the agenda. She's going to be a vice president on steroids, so to speak. And then we'll pass it off. She'll run uh, for you know, she'll run for the next term. And that's the way that we'll do this. I think it's a compelling narrative. I think that there's a pretty decent chance. I'd say it's 50 50 that if Bloomberg does well enough on Super Tuesday, this then becomes the strategy. It's put Hillary at the bottom of this ticket and then have it be a transition into a Hillary presidency after Bloomberg goes one term. I think it makes sense. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Anybody, even people in this room, so no offense intended, to, to be a farmer. You, it's a process. So you dig a hole, you put a seed in, you put dirt on top, add water, up comes the corn. Then we had 300, you could learn that. Then, then um, you had 300 years of the industrial society. Uh, you put the piece of metal on the lathe, you turn the crank and the direction of the arrow, and you can have a job. And, and we created a lot of jobs. One point. 98% of the world worked in, uh, in agriculture today. It's 2% in the United States. Uh, now comes the information economy. And the information economy is fundamentally different because it's built around replacing people with technology. And the skill sets that you have to learn are how to think and analyze. And that is a whole degree level different you have to have a different skill set. You have to have a lot more gray matter. A lot more gray matter, mini Mike Bloomberg says, to be in the information economy than to be a farmer. So some are saying this is mini Mike's deplorables moment. This was from a few years ago, I think a 2016 conference where he was speaking. Uh, mini Mike does not understand anything about farming, uh, does not know how much is involved in it, how difficult it is, how risky it is, the debts that farmers carry, the planning that goes into being a farmer, the physical labor that goes into being a farmer, the risks, the actual physical risks, uh, the wear and tear on your body, as well as uh, just having a diverse skill set. And it really all comes down to what you are able to do at the end of the day. And you're trying to feed your family, you're trying to keep the farm. It's a, t it's a, tough, a tough life. 
And the dismissive nature that Bloomberg has here for farmers is just indicative of he, he is a an ultra an ultra wealthy billionaire elitist from New York City. That's that's what Mike is. There's no way around that. That's who he is. That's what he is. And how is that going to play for the Democrats in states that are essential for the Democrats to win if they're going to really be if they're going to be competitive against Trump? Places like Ohio and Missouri and Wisconsin uh, are those places that now uh, you're going to have to think, hold on a second. Mike Bloomberg may not do. Did I say Missouri? I meant to say Michigan, but whatever. Same idea. Uh, Those are all states that I don't think people are going to be very pleased with hearing if Mike becomes, mini Mike becomes the Democrat nominee, uh, the way that he speaks about farmers. Um, That's also, by the way, there's a lot of ways to be in the information economy that we're all standing on the shoulders of geniuses all the time here. We're using computer. None of us can build a computer, none of us really understands how to. Uh, how any of this stuff even works that we use all the time. So as much as we may think that we're all so exceptional because we use these gadgets and whatnot, uh, we also are very much reliant upon the geniuses that made all this stuff for us and created this world around us. And Bloomberg, uh, look, he just seemed very dismissive here. It seemed like Bloomberg was really not thinking very long and hard about what he was saying before he said it there. But he also didn't realize necessarily he was going to be running for president. There's another thing that he said that's going to be a little problem. So, the, yeah, the, the farmers saying that, you know, you dig a hole, the, the stuff comes out of the ground in the hole. It's that easy. It's not that easy at all. And it just goes to show you, you know, this would be like someone saying, like Mike Bloomberg, someone saying uh, that, oh, it's it's just so it's just so simple. To uh, you know, it's so simple to be like a general contractor. Really? Can you do it? Would you make? You think you make a living doing it, Mike Bloomberg? You think you'd be able to build a house for somebody? You think you'd be able to build a, an addition to someone's? It, whatever it may be. You know, people have different skills, and 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 their labor should be respected for what it is. But then you get into Bloomberg's view on healthcare, and this is very interesting because. They're going to all say, how dare he? He's a plutocrat. He shouldn't. But there is more truth in what he's saying about the Democrat position on health care than he really wants, than they want to admit. Uh, Please play 14. If you're bleeding, I'll stop the bleeding. If you need an x-ray, you're going to have to wait. That's just all of these costs keep going up. Nobody wants to pay any more money. And at the rate we're going, health care is going to bankrupt us. So not only do we have a problem. It's going to bankrupt And we've got to sit here and say which things we're going to do and which things we're not. Nobody wants to do that. You, know, you show up with prostate cancer and you're 95 years old. We should say, go and enjoy, have a nice day, live a long life. There's no cure and you can't do anything. If you're a young person, we should do something about it. Society's not willing to do that yet. He's right. Society is not willing to hear that yet, but. That will be reality. As what he just said there is an example of of uh, what what's going to get him in trouble. But he understands how a business functions. He knows how the market works. And this is where let's just say he, he's speaking the truth. It's a truth that people don't want to hear. You see, the Bernie Sanders model for healthcare is going to be free for everybody. Everybody's going to get everything they want. It's going to be amazing. Your care will be great. Your costs will go down. It's a lie. It's a lie. 
it's there are there are finite finite points of access, finite points of delivery for healthcare. There's only a certain number right now in the United States, a certain number of doctors with a certain number of hours, a certain number of specialists with a certain number of hours, hospital facilities, surgeons, all the, you know, all these things. And there are market forces at work. And we keep being told by politicians, well, if only we have more laws, more regulations that manipulate these processes, we'll all get better care. But it doesn't work that way. There are rational responses that doctors and hospitals and others take as a result of the government regulations. You know, right now, one of the realities that people don't want to hear about is you've got often a doctor, a hospital and an insurance company all fighting over who is going to get more of your money, which does not go well for you as a consumer, because eventually what happens is they just they they they're fighting over a pool of cash. Then they just want the pool of cash to be bigger. So they all get a bigger piece. But they're all fighting over money in some circumstances. You know, who, who's actually going to be getting paid what? Who takes what percentage home? When Bloomberg says that there are going to be old people who are told, look, you know, if you're 95 years old and you have prostate cancer, you know, God be with you, we'll help make you comfortable. But we're not going to. This is a real thing. I mean, there are uh, there are already cancer treatments out there that are genetic based therapies and it could cost a million dollars Novartis AG for example has a newly approved cell therapy for cancer at $475,000 Gilead Sciences has a rival drug at $373,000 who gets the half million dollar cancer drug folks does anybody with cancer at any stage of life get that and it's going to be paid we're going to just we are going to bankrupt the country if this is what happens. So then you say, well, if it's not market-based, it's government-based, and we start getting back into this conversation about Obamacare and death panels, and they're just going to—they're going to have rationing that they might not even. If you do more government-managed care, Medicare for all, public option, all these different things that Democrats are talking about right now, if you go down that path as a country, what you're going to have is rationing. Without them willing to, without them being open and willing to talk about how that's what you're getting, which is rationing, they're just going to say, "Oh no, it's you know you're delayed, but we'll we'll get it for you eventually." Or no, they're they're going to just tell you, "Sorry, you're not going to be able to have that drug," and that's going to be it. By the way, there's not going to be any appeal. There's not no other doctor you can go to, no other experimental therapy. You know, it's, this is not this is not going to go well for a lot of people, and also the drug makers. The people that are coming up with these new, very advanced cancer treatments, you know, they want to make money. And if it's not going to be profitable for them to expand these treatments and make them cheaper because they have to compete with other drug makers, then the mar- then market forces aren't going to be working in favor of consumers. You and me, we are the consumers here. So the these, these different treatments can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars up to, for example, CAR T cell therapy can cost up to a million dollars for one person for cancer treatment. So under a Bernie Sanders plan, someone should ask him the if we had a real press corps, if they weren't a bunch of of sycophants for leftists and, and for their own ideological proclivities played out through the media, somebody would ask Bernie Sanders, 
who get does everyone get a million dollar cancer treatment? Can they all just say, hey, I don't care what the prognosis is. I don't care what the the percentages of of survival rates are. I want to spend a million. I, I want the government rather not. I want to spend. I want the government to spend a million dollars on my cancer treatment. Don't know if it'll work. Don't. That's that's a number where you start to you start to look at and say, how many million dollar cancer treatments is the government going to be able to approve for people before we have a problem? Right. That means now a hundred patients and a million dollars each is a hundred million dollars. That's that's only a hundred patients, folks. We're in a country of three hundred twenty million people. You know, now you start to see that the promise of Sanders on health care is a lie. It always has been a lie. Yeah, it'll be you'll be able to go in with Medicare for all. You'd be able to go in and, you know, have a doctor who has pretty minimal MD training, tell you if you've got an ear infection or not, and maybe write you a script for penicillin or something or whatever you take for an ear infection. This is this is what's considered so great, whether it's Sweden or Cuba we're talking about with their healthcare system. You go in, you don't pay anything, and there's some doctor there who generally is going to tell you what you already know. I can't tell you how many times I go to the doctor and I'm like, hey, doc, like this is what I think's going on. Can we? And they go, oh, no, let's got to take your blood pressure, got to touch your like neck to see what's going on with your uh, your glands and got to do this and that. And, you know, got to turn, cough, hit the back, all this stuff. Yeah, it's exactly what you thought. Here's the prescription that you know you needed. And, you know, that'll be five hundred dollars. Thanks so much. I've, I've had that experience so many times. That, that is my primary experience with doctors, in fact. So I, I try not to go to doctors. I'm one of those people now. Unless I'm desperate, I don't go to the doctor. Unless I'm actually worried about something, I don't go. Because they generally don't tell me anything I don't already know. And they usually just, if it's anything that's chronic or they're just like, yeah, try meditating. Get more sleep. Drink more water. Thanks, doc. Real helpful. So there's a lot of that that goes on now, too. Everyone believes, oh, if I have medical care, I'm going to be healthy. It's not true. Now, now we're getting into some of the deep stuff. This is reality. Most of the things that afflict us all that are chronic illnesses are uh, the best treatments for them are, are generally life, lifestyle related, your own immune system. Uh, there's a, there are a lot of, of things out there that doctors are not particularly adept at treating. Uh, and I've talked to people before about chronic pain management and different things. Like, and, you know, you'll go and you'll spend. They'll take your money. They'll take your money, and then they, when they can't fix you or they can't fix the problem, then they just say, oh, you know, then they just don't want to see you anymore really either. I'm just – look, this is – I've been to plenty of doctors for plenty of things, and the the reality is that the – I want – no, they're great doctors. This is like talking about public school teachers, right? I mean, there's a lot of bad public school teachers. There's a lot of great public school teachers, and then the great ones get mad at me when I talk about how the system doesn't weed out the bad ones, but it's true in medicine now as well. There's the incentives for being a great doctor are going down, um, although in New York City, you have doctors who will just get paid in cash, effectively, or get paid with a credit card. They don't want to go through the health insurance system anymore. And that's also what you're going to have with the Medicare for All system. You're going to have doctors who say, just pay me. And they'll, they'll be great doctors, and they'll see you on time, and they'll follow up, and you'll be able to get them on the phone and all this other stuff. The doctors that, you know, Bernie Sanders is promising that they're going to take care of all your problems. You know, you're going to wait six weeks and you're going to show up and you're going to spend four hours sitting in a waiting room. And, you know, eventually they'll spend five minutes with you because they don't care because the government's going to. This is what this is what our reality will be. There's no other way. This is what the reality will be. And every MD that I've talked to who's honest says, yeah, that's. That's going to be, you're going to tell me I have to see 100 patients a day. I'm going to spend five minutes with a patient, do the best I can in the five minutes. But, you know, it's going to be an assembly line. It's not going to work, folks. 
So Bloomberg is is getting a lot of heat for the the farmer comment, which which he should. But on on somebody who's ninety five who has cancer, and him saying, "Look, we're not going to be able to just do every treatment for every person, or we're bankrupt the country." He's telling the truth. Bernie Sanders doesn't want anyone to hear that truth, though. Bernie Sanders wants to promise you that there's a Santa Claus, that he's effectively Santa Claus, and you're all of your health care needs. You're not going to be sick. All your health care needs are going to be taken care of. It's a lie. If we had real health insurance, by the way, where it was actually insurance, it should be like the way it is for your car, where you just you pay in every month, and you should accept that health, excuse me, health care will be an expense that you pay. But beyond $5,000 or beyond $10,000 or whatever, if you get really sick and it's medically necessary, the doctors, you know, you'll be covered. The insurance company. But no, everyone wants, to, everyone wants to show up and they show the little card and they have a $20 or a $50 copay and they think that they're getting some great deal. They're not. But like I said, people want to hear that there is a Santa Claus. I'm here, producer Brandon, to tell everybody when it comes to health care, it doesn't matter if you're on the naughty or the nice list be better if we all paid for it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. First, while there is in a hotly contested Democratic nomination process, I am absolutely confident that no matter who the winner is, needless to say, I hope it is me. <laughs> But no matter who the winner will be, I have absolute confidence that we are all going to unite behind that candidate and defeat the most dangerous president in the modern history of this country. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if the Democratic Party would be able to unite against Bloomberg if he becomes the nominee. I think the Bernie bros, the Bernie supporters... They they would have to view Bloomberg winning as a total betrayal by the Democratic Party again, as they saw in 2016. I, I think that's how they would have to respond. That's how they would respond based on the way they view the world. So while Bernie can make this promise, I don't think he can follow through on it. But maybe, hey, maybe Biden is not as as uh, as his campaign's not as much toast as everybody's been saying. That's possible. We got Nevada this weekend, which I always appreciate that someone who listened to this show had to point out to me that it's Nevada, not Nevada. I said it wrong for a very I said a U.S. state name wrong for a very long time. A lot of New Yorkers, though, say that one wrong, I will tell you. You know, I also, though, I've always said Oregon properly because there was a video game that everyone used to call Oregon Trail, which was a lot of. Do you ever play that game? It was a fun game for computer. That's how I learned the computer. Back really, in the day. Oregon, or Oregon? Well, I guess people call it Oregon Trail, but it's Oregon. I would call is the it state. Oregon Trail. But right. then again, being from Long Island, I say on Long Island instead of in. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, it's fair. I'm producer producer Mark corrects me. He won't he won't let me say Strong Island. But I understand why isn't an island strong? Strong Island. It just sounds very bro. That's probably true. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. If I get elected president of the United States with my position on health care, my position on uh, global warming, my position on foreign policy, my position on the middle class, this will go down as one of the most progressive administrations in American history. One of the most progressive administrations in American history, Joe Biden offers up for you folks. Yeah. 
That's what he's saying now. I thought Joe Biden was supposed to be the return to normalcy, a a realist Democrat, the old school of no. Joe Biden's whatever he has to be, whenever he has to be it. The guy has always been deeply unimpressive. And the fact that he was the Democrat frontrunner as long as he is, is really just a commentary on what an incredibly weak Democratic field it was. It has never been a strong field. It has never been a, a field of Democrats where you say, wow, any one of these people can be president. Any one of them would be able to uh, make this happen. It's just not the case. And for him to say that he's going to be so progressive uh, just shows to show you that he'll say whatever, because in six months, or not six months, I guess it'd be, well, yeah, about six months, you know, if, if Joe Biden were the nominee in the general election, all of a sudden he'd be telling you that everything that he wants to do is what the majority of the American people want, and he's going to bring us back to a time when, you know, we're all, uh, you know, our, our, our politics are united around core American values, and he's blue-collar Joe in the whole, right now he's woke Joe. He's woke Joe Biden. He's like, yeah, man. They better make sure that they don't milk too many cows, because <laughs> we'll have to talk more about that. It's a problem with with cow milk these days. You know, everyone's on the left wing bandwagon now about the cows. Everyone's got to calm down on this. But there's a, a little bit of a a three way war going on right now, and this is a fascinating dynamic: Biden, Sanders, and Bloomberg. Because before I get into their three way battle. Because they're the three biggest national level figures in the Democrat primary. It's not going to be Pete Buttigieg, okay? Pete Buttigieg can't. The guy can't even get. You you can count the number of minority votes that guy's gotten on one hand. It's just not going to happen. He's not going to be president of the United States. He's not going to win the Democrat primary. So right now it's a it's a Bloomberg, Biden, Bernie, the three the three Bs: Bloomberg, Biden, Bernie. They're the the ones to to beat in this. Elizabeth Warren just just underperformed. Turns out that people were not excited to have somebody running for president who has lied for her whole adult life about how she's a Native American. I mean, you know, it's not it's not gonna work for Elizabeth Warren either. So you got the three B's, Bernie, Bloomberg, Biden. And the first thing that you gotta remember about all of them is that they are too old for the job. These guys are too old. And I know people say, oh, but Trump is, you know, what is he, 71, 72? No, but these guys are like late 70s. And that makes a difference. There is a difference between somebody who is 71, 72 and somebody who's 78, 79, 80. You know, this matters in terms of energy, in terms of precision, of, of thought, in terms of health. I mean, Bernie just had a heart attack. I keep hearing people say, didn't, didn't Bernie have a cardiac incident? It's a heart attack. And I'm glad he's doing well. And, you know, we don't wish ill health on anyone, no matter what their politics in this country. But and I'm glad that Bernie is as robust as he is and has, has made his comeback and good for him. But health is, is a legitimate concern about whether or not you should vote for somebody. Keep in mind that they still try to tell us that Trump is crazy. I mean, like out of his mind, crazy that Trump is not someone that we can have as commander in chief because he's so uh, he's he's deranged, effectively. He, his brain doesn't function properly. Uh, meanwhile, Trump would tell you he's a very stable genius. But this is the this is the way that the double standard plays out about health and about age. But Biden, Bloomberg, Bernie, too old. 
They are all too old for this job. So don't forget that as the media tries to tell you, oh, but this and that and Trump and no, 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 no. None of, none of these candidates, are, but they're desperate at this point. They're dead. What's the alternative? Uh, you know, Biden realizes that that he is this is slipping away from him very, very quickly. And that's why he's going after Bernie, because he needs Bernie out. Right. He, he needs to get ahead of Bernie again and become the front runner. Biden's currency this whole time has been I'm the guy who will win. I'm going to win the primary. I'm going to beat Trump. So you vote for him because he'll win. That's it. Well, you're not going to think someone's a winner if another candidate in their own primary is ahead of them, right? That that defeats the, the perception of them as the winner as you move along. So that's why he's going after Bernie. Play clip two. One thing about Bernie, you know where he stands. You know who he is. He doesn't change. And I mean, he's, isn't and he's that- never gotten anything done. I'm not being. I mean, no, he's I a decent guy. I mean, he's been talking about health care, Medicare for all, universal health care for 35 years. Nothing's happened. I helped get past Obamacare. I mean, this is the part of Biden that just seems kind of cheap, right? So everything that occurred during the during the Obama administration, Biden takes Biden takes credit for all, all the stuff that Democrats like about the Obama era. Biden takes credit for. I think that he forgets that really the the Democrats' favorite thing about the Obama presidency for all eight years, by far their number one favorite component, favorite aspect, favorite factor in all of that in those eight years was President Obama himself, the man. It was about Obama. Obamacare was not this amazing transformative health care fix that they said it was going to be. I've talked to you about it before. It didn't do some of the things they said it would do. They scaled it back. They had to do all these fixes. And essentially, it just created a taxpayer-subsidized, low-quality health care plan in the individual market in some states and created a huge Medicaid expansion, health care welfare in a bunch of states. That's all that it really did. And there's some other stuff, too. Pre-existing conditions, though. As we know, Democrat, they won. They won on that. Because everyone feels like, hey, hold on a second. I'm really going to have a health insurer tell me that because I had, you know, a strep throat when I was 12 and now I'm, I'm 30 and I have to have a uh, you know, tonsillectomy that they consider it a pre-existing condition. I mean, that's really going to happen. Everyone feels like that's unjust. So the Democrats were effectively able to get their whole health care monstrosity through just by yelling pre-existing conditions, pre-existing conditions all the time. Republicans should have beat them off of the past with that, but they didn't. Uh, should have defeated them, but they weren't able to figure that out. Um, head them off at the pass, rather. So then we go to uh, another area where I think Joe Biden's going to have a lot of trouble, where the Democratic Party's going to have a lot of trouble that you haven't seen much talk about in recent months, and it is around health care. I'm sorry. Gosh, we're talking health care. It is around immigration. Uh, I, I will not forget, nor will I let anyone who listens to me forget, that you had Two Democrat debates go on in a 24-hour period with 10, 10 candidates and then another 10 candidates, roughly. I think it was 20 total. And the first night, they all stood up and they raised their hand when they were asked the question, do you want to let illegal aliens into the country and to access government health care? Every single hand went up among the Democrats. Every single one. And that was a moment that I was like, this this Democratic Party is going to have some problems. 
and this is going to come back to haunt them because that's an for 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 Americans who have not been so thoroughly propagandized, who have not been so thoroughly brainwashed, that's a problem. That's an issue. That you would have people who are not even legally allowed to be in the country and are going to be given health care at the expense of taxpayers. What's the outer limit of that? How many people are allowed to do that before? Not only do we see the price of it skyrocket to the place where even leftists would say, wow, that's really expensive. So anyone can just show up here and demand that that you you have to pay taxes, which is your time. Really, the government is taking time out of your life because most of us are paid for our time in some capacity. So the government is stealing hours of your life from you by force and not just doing it so that we can have a military that protects us and have basic government infrastructure and you know, the enforcement of laws and contracts, but all these different programs. You got a, what is it now, a, a multi-trillion dollar government apparatus. And they're also going to be taking money from you in order to give health care to illegal aliens at the federal level. I mean, here in New York City, they have a health care program that, they've set, that de Blasio has set up that is going to cost $100 million dollars a year that's just for one city giving health care to illegal aliens just just give health care to illegal aliens anyone who's illegal you get health care now in new york city and you know the taxes in new york keep going up and up and up all the time and people are leaving people are going to florida because of this well at least you have the ability to leave a state that has programs that want to give health care to, to illegal aliens if the federal government is doing it and if it's for people that are crossing the southern border and are getting federal payments for their health care now we're all now we're all stuck wherever you're listening to the show across the country. Now we all have this issue to deal with. And Joe Biden, in order to try to beat the challenge that comes at him from the, his left flank, of the Democratic Party, has also adopted what in any other time would be considered an extreme position on immigration. Play 15. We can afford to do this in terms, this is a big country. The idea we can accommodate more people in the interest of the United States, and by the way, guess what? They're the reason why, the legal as well as undocumented. They're the reason why our society is functioning, the reason why our economy is growing. We don't talk about that. We stand up and act like it's a burden. It is not a burden. It's a gift. Illegal immigration is a gift. That's what he's saying. It's a gift. Okay, if that is the case, if that is his position as stated, if we had real journalists, they would say, well, then why why should the country not have open borders? Why should we tell anybody who if, if illegal immigrants add to the economy or the reason the economy works, make everything better? Why shouldn't we just say anyone can come? Do the Democrats have an answer for this? Oh, they say, oh no, we need to. Pro- okay, fine. You can like stop people, fingerprint them, say, hey, welcome to America. Here's your passport. You're now an American. You know, come on in. Why not do that if what Joe Biden says is true? If there's no downside to illegal immigration, why not have unlimited illegal immigration? They never have an answer for this. And you'll you'll get these libertarians who are you know they're paid by a combination of. You know, these uh, these these libertarian types that come from foundations that some of them get money from Soros, you know, they're, they're very. Oh, yeah. They, they it adds to the economy. Just we should be open borders. I mean, you'll hear from some libertarians that we should just be an open borders country, which is pretty remarkable, because at that point you have to ask, well, how is this even really a country? 
And does anyone really want to fight and die for a country where you can show up and be treated? Someone who can get here tomorrow has all the same rights as I do without going through any process or any Americanization whatsoever. Can a, can a million Chinese show up in, in a state and, and vote in that state under this open borders policy and, and flip it for one political party or the other? No more foreign interference complaints, right? Because we're all the same, man. If we're open borders, it doesn't matter anymore. It's, this is insane. I mean, this is the dissolution of nation states and, and the modern civilized world that we live in. But there are people that think this is the height of sophistication to advocate for this. But I, I would want an answer to my question. If illegal immigration is a gift to this country, why not just have endless amounts of illegal immigration? Why did the Obama administration try to, to at some points, limit it? Why do they do any deep? Why should anyone be deported? The more the merrier. The more the merrier. It makes us a better, stronger, wealthier country, right? Keep in mind, though, that then you get into this formulation. Actually, reminds me of what Mitt Romney said in 2012 about makers and takers. Uh, given the size of the welfare state in this country, and Milton Friedman knew this back in the middle of the 20th century, if you have a welfare state and you have open borders, you're not going to have a country for very long. Because there are people who are a greater drain on the resources of the state than they are in addition to the resources of the state. And now you start looking at, well, hold on a minute. If people are coming here from third world countries that have no skills or education and can't speak English, we really are to believe that if they have access to the full panoply of welfare in this country, they're going to be a net addition to the economy? This is absurd. I mean, there's a reason why this country is already running a $22 trillion deficit. And that's mostly based on the people that are already here. And those who look at this say that at some point this is going to, the music's going to stop and we're going to have a real disaster on our hands. The answer is not to just kick the doors wide open and let everybody come in. But that's what Joe Biden and the other Democrats are effectively saying here. They become extremists on abortion, on immigration, on climate change. Democratic Party's gone nuts. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Bernie, I'm your biggest supporter. Bernie, I'm your biggest supporter. And I'm here to ask you to stop propping up the dairy industry and to stop propping up animal agriculture. I believe in you. Someone grabbed the mic at a Bernie Sanders rally there. It's amazing they can just hop up on stage and do that. Yelling at him to stop propping up the dairy industry. Ever since Joaquin Phoenix gave his little speech at the Oscars about this, uh, now this has become a fashionable, a, a fashionable cause. And there are a whole variety of reasons for this. Let me first say, uh, I used to spend summers for really about 20 years at uh, my grandparents' place in upstate New York. And we had neighbors who were farmers, and including dairy farms uh, and you'd see the cows and you'd see what's going on there and everything seems fine I don't know what to say all this, this these horrible stories uh, about dairy farmers and, and how evil they are I've seen dairy farmers I've seen goat farmers I've seen all kinds of farms up close in fact in the springtime I used to always try to sneak up to the to the fence and because I always I thought baby goats were like the cutest thing ever so I always want to go and pet the baby goats and the reason that these people are getting so upset about dairy farms is because this is actually a, this is an extension of of climate change mania. This is what you got to remember. This it's really not about preventing animal cruelty. Uh, you know, you could have there. Are, there are discussions certainly to be had about whether in more industrial sized farms animals are being 
treated reasonably well under the circumstances. Um, but in in general, this is because they're looking for a way to get rid of, as she said, animal effectively animal husbandry or or animal agriculture. Uh, using animals in this way for food, using them for for dairy uh, for you know for their milk. Uh, this is now considered cruel and evil because it's really a function of saving the planet from climate change. I mean, these people don't really care about uh, the realities of the natural world that we all live in. You know, I wonder what, why aren't they crying? You know, every time you have like a sea turtle hatchling on the shore, is about a one in a thousand shot that that sea turtle is going to make it. So one out of a thousand sea turtle hatchlings will make it to adult to being an adult sea turtle. So they're all being picked off all the time, all being eaten, all being crushed, all being chewed up and everything. I mean, this is the world that we live in. Animals, animals eat other animals. Right. You can go through in the ocean from from plankton all the way up to whales. Right. Animals are eating other animals all the time. Life, life begets life and life ending life is necessary for other life to flourish. And we have to wonder at some point, what is really the expectation here? We're going to stop doing any dairy farming, any we're going to stop eating meat altogether because vegans are a bunch of crazies. I don't know. I don't know what else to say, but vegans have gotten a little bit. Now, I know there's some vegans that say it's for health. Whenever that's fine. People can eat whatever they want. I don't care. People telling other people what they can eat for moral reasons, though, is annoying. It's annoying, especially when there's not honesty over what's really going on here, which is an effort to create a moral imperative to shut down uh animals being used for uh, for milk or for meat because of the threat of climate change which is not really a threat but people now they're they're, they're crazy and so they got to find a way to get rid of all and they got to find a way to get rid of all the meth- methane from the cows and they're just they're they're losing it folks the democrats are losing it that's why you have people running up at bernie sanders at rallies saying get rid of milk thanks for listening to the bus sex and show podcast remember to subscribe on apple podcast the iheart radio app or wherever you get your podcasts the president says he has the legal right to intervene in criminal cases do you agree just because does the president have a right to tweet about a case of course just because you can sing, though, doesn't mean you should sing. Um, you can have a voice like Mick Jagger, but you wouldn't want to start belting out honky-tonk woman in church. Uh, this is a case where tweeting less would not cause brain damage. Look, Roger Stone is pretty good at bad decisions, and nobody would confuse him with Alexander Hamilton. Bill Barr's Justice Department prosecuted him and convicted him. While the Attorney General and others were trying to get the Senate's recommendation straight, the President tweeted, put the Attorney General in an awkward spot, and he spoke out. The sentence that was given to Roger Stone fit into the guidelines. You know, there are federal guidelines. He wasn't being... Be- being doing any special favor, nor was anybody going after him in particular. He did a lot of serious crimes, and they fit into the guidelines. They should not be changed. Uh, Chuck Schumer's a liar. Uh, of course, people are going after him. They gave him the top, really the, the top range of the guidelines under the circumstances because they used enhancements for Roger Stone's offenses that no reasonable person should have thought were enhancements under the under the statutory interpretation of what's of what had happened. But this is this is now all part of, of another Democrat narrative of, oh, corruption. Look at how terrible this thing is. And we're talking about how long Roger Stone should go to prison for. 
And they want him to go to prison, it seems, for a long time. For what exactly? For lying to Congress, which people do all the time with no consequences. Just ask some of the Democrat appointee CIA and DNI directors in recent years. No punishment whatsoever for their lies. And uh, for threatening a witness and obstructing, the witness wasn't really threatened. Roger Stone is an old man who just is a little bit weird sometimes and likes to... You know, he likes to poke the bear. He likes to make things, he likes to play play, uh, outside the lines a little bit sometimes. That's it. And to pretend that that's a serious crime, and we're in this world now where McCabe is not getting prosecuted for lying under oath more than once to the FBI inspector general. Doesn't that tell you a lot, folks? What else do we really have to know at this point? Anyone in Trump's orbit, I mean, this is the... The recurring theme, the recurring reality that we all live in now has been made very clear by the declination of uh, pursuing a case against former acting FBI Director McCabe. Um, Trump, for example, is such a dictator that his opponents use police state tactics against him to steal and then reverse the 2016 election. And none of the people who did that even get prosecuted, never mind convicted and sent to prison. Not one. Meanwhile, the deep state routinely crushes Trump supporters, people like Roger Stone. They, they go after uh, Paul Manafort with everything they've got for what was just effectively tax evasion. I mean, I'm not saying tax evasion's okay, although, you know, sometimes I wish, I wish that there were ways to legally evade a little more taxes. Uh, but only unserious people refuse to see what really happens here, which is that if you're in Trump's orbit— and there's a way to make a criminal case against you, somehow someone within the DOJ apparatus throws everything they've got at you and crushes you. But if you are someone who has stepped out of line trying to attack Trump, trying to go after Trump, you know that you will be given more than the benefit of the doubt. You'll be given a, a, a sweetheart a sweetheart situation. You won't even be, be prosecuted. You're not even in any trouble. And that's why... I think it's so important right now. I think the most the most essential member of Trump's cabinet, and really after Trump, I would say the most important person in the Trump presidency right now is Attorney General Barr, which is why the left hates him so much, which is why they've come up with all these reasons to pretend that he's evil and must go and is such a bad guy. Um, Eugene Robinson over at the Washington Post has pointed out that the president probably did not like being told off by Attorney General Barr when it comes to tweets. Please play uh, clip five, Producer Brandon. A serious prosecutor, I think Bill Barr once was a serious prosecutor, I'm not sure he is now, but I do think, uh, I cannot imagine that President Trump um, liked being publicly rebuked by somebody who worked for him. Whatever. No other cabinet secretary has gotten away with it. Even if it had been a plea pre-planned kind of song and dance, he would not have enjoyed that. That would have eaten at him. I think it will eat at him that the Justice Department is not going to prosecute Andrew McCabe. Or it's Jim not going to go down, or Jim Comey, right? It's not going to go down the ro- that road that President Trump wants it to go down. Yes, we all know they're not going to go down that road. We keep thinking, we on the right, uh, and people that are in charge and, and in power, that if we act better than the left, they'll eventually come around. That's not the way that it works. It's not going to happen. 
We, we hold to this standard that they don't hold to, and then we wonder why we keep running into the situation where, as I said, people in Trump's orbit, people around Trump, they get crushed. Meanwhile, people who are around, uh, or rather people who are caught trying to take Trump down, get away with everything. There's nothing, nothing bad happens to them. Has a single person, has one person involved in Russia Trump, the Russia Trump collusion hysteria, which was all a big lie, meant to take down a presidency. Has one person involved in that faced criminal, uh, served uh, any, any time in prison for a criminal violation? Nope. Most of them never even end up getting prosecuted. One of the other problems they have here is that anything that comes, uh, any any time the federal court is going to bring charges against somebody who is part of the resistance trying to take Trump down, that trial happens in D.C. Guess where the people who sit on that jury come from? Washington, D.C., which is a 95 percent Democrat stronghold. So do you really think that anyone I mean, I have to remind some of my conservative friends, this: even if you are able to get a grand jury, which is an if to indict someone like McCabe, the jury trial would probably go in McCabe's favor. All you need is one person who watches enough Rachel Maddow and enough CNN and you know enough MSNBC, reads enough Washington Post editorials to think that Trump is a threat to the country and McCabe is a hero for standing up to them. Only one person on that jury has to really believe that, and McCabe's not spending a day in jail. That's how polarized and politicized the country has become right now, and, and it has been for a while. I mean, that's, that's what the, the truth of the Trump era really is. The left no longer holds to any good faith principles that we can share with them. It's all, does this hurt Trump or not? Does this take Trump down or not? This is how you have also over 1,100 former Justice Department officials calling for Attorney General Barr to resign, condemning his interference in the fair administration of justice. They've released a statement. Oh, gosh, over 1,100 people who used to work at DOJ are upset over the Roger Stone case. Yeah, they're called Democrats. Who cares? They, they keep thinking, they, they go through this all the time where, oh, we, you know, we were professionals working in the government and we're all signing a letter together. And then we, when we look into it and the, the ringleaders of this are always people that have donated lots of money to Democrats and work for Democrat causes. And you know, they just lie about this. They just lie about this. There was that guy who came out of the Obama administration as an NSC official and wrote some editorial, I think it was in the Washington Post, but how I'm just an intelligence professional. And like, here's why I think Trump is a danger. And everyone's like, intelligence professional? All you do is write checks for Democrats and go to, like, Democrat fundraisers and vote for Democrats and try to get other people to vote for. But you're just an intelligence professional. It's just a lie. I mean, people are dishonest about this. And then they wonder why we don't want to listen to them when they start to, to play that tune again of, oh, I'm just a professional. Over the Roger Stone case, the attorney general should resign. Here, here's a question that these people can answer. What, what exactly did the attorney general do that they know is, is in any way corrupt or a violation? They assume that the president ordered the attorney general to look at the sentencing of Roger Stone and change it. Meanwhile, any normal person looking at that sentencing says, hold on a second, that's crazy, guys. Seven to nine, requesting seven to nine years for what he did? Seven to nine years, almost a decade in federal prison. Come on. Oh, no, but the president's so crazy. People, they're, they're just like deranged little crybabies. They can't handle that they're not always getting their way, and they also can't handle the president is better at this. He's better at this than Obama was. He's better at this than Pelosi. He's better at this than Schumer because he understands what really matters. He understands what works, and he tries to do those things. He tries to follow 
uh, follow through on the promises that he's made to, to voters, irrespective of the media always just chirping at him all the time about how this is bad and you're not giving us enough access and you don't treat us with enough respect in the media. He doesn't care about any of that. I will say I'm, I'm a little concerned. I, I hope that Attorney General Barr does not resign and or that Trump does not throw a throw a tantrum at him because uh, the last attorney general almost led to the president of the United States getting uh, having his presidency ended. Jeff Sessions was was not up for the challenge of defending the president against the Russia collusion nonsense. Okay, Attorney General Barr, when he saw what the Mueller report was trying to do, which was to leave this whole, we don't know if we could make criminal charges, but here's all the criminal charges that maybe we could assert. Why don't we hand this over to Congress? But no one's making a determination. Attorney General Barr saw that. He came out. He said, no, no, no. We're make, it's our call. We're making the determination. There was no crime. Here, go ahead. There was no crime. It's already It has been officially decided. There was no crime here. Now, now go and try to hand this off to Congress to get your whole removal proceedings based on Russia collusion that didn't happen and obstruction that is a total reach in every respect on each of the 10 counts. The attorney general effectively saved Trump's presidency with that. Do you think do you think that Jeff Sessions would have said would have said, yeah, that's that's what needs to happen here. No, Jeff Sessions, he comes from that mentality of we need to be honorable even if it means we get crushed. We, we need to play we need to play fair to the other side when fair just means letting the other side run over you with a truck. That was the Jeff Sessions approach. Barr does Barr knows that game. He knows what's going on here. So and I think there's a reason why you haven't seen Trump lash out at him or because you know, he knows Barr has got his has got his back. And yeah, I'm going to say it because he know he knows what's going on here. The department that Barr oversees has been weaponized against the president of the United States. It's obvious. It's been obvious for a long time. That's you got to love that though with Chuck Schumer. You know, it was within the guidelines. Yeah, sure it was. It was within the guidelines. Why not send him to prison for 50 years? You know, why, why didn't they go? Why didn't they try to go for the death penalty for obstruction of justice and lying to Congress? You know, why why stop there? Psycho Dems. It's the whole thing is just so absurd. After a while, you ask yourself, what what world are they living in? But they're all they're all emotionally damaged by this. And the Trump presidency is emotionally damaged. A lot of libs who think they're very fancy and very wise and very smart because it was supposed to be this terrible thing. Meanwhile, having a guy who's not an is not an establishment politician, not a swamp creature that plays the game the way that. The left dominated media tells you you have to play it and doesn't bow to them and try to be nice to them uh, is a better president than anybody, anybody since Ronald Reagan. And if he keeps going to this rate, he's going to line up quite well with Reagan. And you, I think you could flip a coin to decide which one you think is better. That's that's what we're heading for right now. And they hate every second of it because of that. What does it mean for people like Paul Krugman, who are saying that we're heading for eternal recession under the Trump presidency, a recession with no end in sight? And it's been the exact opposite of that. What does it mean for his intelligence, his wisdom? But why, why should we listen to this person about anything else? And you can l create a huge list of people who are making similar predictions of gloom and doom, saying the terrible things were going to happen because of the Trump presidency. And none of it happened. And in fact, things have been going quite well and continue to go quite well, despite all the stuff that he's had to get through and get past. It's, uh, it's an interesting time in American politics because there are a lot of people who owe Americans an apology, and they're not going to give it anytime soon. They'd rather just keep doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on their wrongness. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
Oh, I, I can't even envision a, a situation where he would be reelected. But we are not. We don't take anything for granted. Uh, as I say that he, he, we have to have our own vision for the future. But everybody knows uh, that we must be unified and making sure that he does not have a second term. Our country is great. The American people are wonderful. We're a resilient country. We can withstand one term. But the destruction that he would do to the uni- the courts of our country and and uh, the environment, where he says, "I'm not going to use science as any basis for decisions on the environment," when he says Article Two says I can do whatever I want, he must be defeated. She's just making stuff up. Article Two says I can do anything. I- Has he ever said that? This is one of my one of my constant. Uh, uh, you know, constant things to remember about the way Democrats criticize this president. They say that he's so terrible, and then they lie about what he's done or said. If what he's doing or saying is so awful, why can't they just be be truthful about it? Why do they always have to give a fake version of it? What did the president actually say? What does he believe about his Article 2 powers? He's not going to use any, any, any science when it comes to the environment? People who believe that the world is melting because of climate change just aren't very bright. I I don't know what else to say about it other than what is obvious. I will be right. In 10 years, the world is not going to be some horrible hellscape because of climate change. In 12 years, we're not going to they're not going to say, oh, we're on a glide path now to destruction. So we might as well not worry about the world is naturally decarbonizing. In fact, I mean, meaning that our, our energy usage is increasingly going toward more efficient and less carbon intensive, less CO2 getting put out in the air. This has been happening. It's been happening for the entire history of the Industrial Revolution, really, meaning we're going to more and more efficient energy sources. That's natural. It is It is occurring. And they're just going to keep this agitation going, oh, we're all going to die. They're going to keep whining about this. And then eventually, when it's clear they're wrong, they're going to say, no, we were just pushing you in the right direction with it. I mean, I know that's where all the climate change loons are going to, that's the refuge they will seek eventually. Okay, maybe we were a little exaggerated with some of this, but because now, you know, every car is an electric car and because now we use more renewable energy than ever before, it's because of all of us, you know, rallying behind a 16-year-old Greta saying, how dare you? How dare you? That's what I say to producer Brandon when he tells me that there's no place in the studio here to take a nap, you know, because I get really tired. My producer Brandon, do you know, is there like a couch somewhere where I could just, because I got a long day in here, and I'm just like, where are you going to, and he says, no, nah, man, I'm sorry, there's nowhere to go, and I just look at him and I say, how dare you? And then he knows that's serious. You were very offended. Very offended. I mean, there should be a nap room here. I remember I went to the Huffington Post offices a long time ago, true story, and uh, and they had a nap room there. And it was so funny because that was a, this big, like, liberal workplace culture thing of we're all going to be really healthy, Brandon. And then I asked some friends who worked there, and they said, oh, no, you can never – if you ever go in there, like, you might as well just quit because that's like you're a slacker. Mm. So you couldn't actually use the nap room, but they had a nap room so that the bosses, so Ariana could be like, darling, take a nap. It's very good for you to get extra sleep during the course of the day. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Very interesting piece over the weekend in the New York Times about all the people who work in the DOJ and other parts of the government who are so upset that Attorney General Barr has asked for prosecutors long-term, well-established, well-respected federal prosecutors, people who also work for the DOJ, 
to look into some of the more contentious and politicized actions of the DOJ in the last few years. Notably, Russia-Trump collusion, which we know Durham, a U.S. attorney from Connecticut, is looking into. And then also now he's asked a prosecutor from Missouri, from the Eastern District of Missouri, to look into the prosecution of General Flynn. The General Flynn prosecution, it's apparent to anyone who thinks through this, uh, this was a political hit. Someone broke the law, committed a felony inside the government to give a a left-wing Washington Post reporter a story uh, about the about Flynn talking to a uh, the Russian ambassador. So someone broke the law, leaked felony. We don't know who that person is yet, of course. I don't know if we'll ever really find out, but I certainly would like us to. I, I have my suspicions. I think it's a name we already know. I don't think it would be some low-level person. Uh, but someone was so outraged that Trump and his team had won in 2016, had beaten Hillary and her squad, that uh, when they had an opportunity, they broke the law, broke their oath, tried to jam up General Flynn by talking about his conversation with, with Sergei Kizilyak. And then DOJ Obama appointees, notably Sally Yates, but also McCabe, the acting FBI director, and little sort of number two to James Comey, you know, James Comey's little, little quizzling, and they set up Flynn. You know, this would be very similar to when I, when I was in the CIA, if I, if I had to sit down and talk to people in the FBI, and I said, hey, guys, uh, we're going to have a, a conference. We're going to sit down and talk about some terrorism-related issue. And, and the FBI showed up, and I thought we we're having a, a talk about, you know, how do we get uh, this, you know, Abu, Abu Jihad, the bad guy or something, right? And we get some, some dude in the terrorism world. We're going to take him off the battlefield. And and sure enough, they start asking me, hey, Buck, actually, uh, you know what? Did you did you talk about uh, anything having to do with this case with the reporter or something? I said, nah, guys, I don't want to be talking about that. Up, up, up. We're going to get you on lying now. You think you're having a conversation with colleagues. And so it's done under false pretenses. And now if there's a real crime that you're investigating, maybe you justify that. Keep in mind, they weren't just they weren't investigating the FBI agents who went to talk to General Flynn were not investigating a real crime. There was a make-believe crime that they were using as a as a pretense to have a sit-down and then trigger all of the federal, you know, lying to federal officers uh, situation as a result of that. And that's where you get the Logan Act, right? They use the Logan Act to pretend that there was a crime going on. And this would be like if someone sat down with me and they said, hey, Buck, we're worried about the emoluments clause with Trump and the Trump Hotel what can you tell us about that? And I said, what do you mean? There's, there's, no, there's no crime here. There's no emoluments clause violation of the Trump Hotel. That's what they did with the Logan Act to get General Flynn to talk to these FBI or to send in these FBI agents to talk to General Flynn. And they've ruined this guy. Remember, Trump is a dictator, but everyone around the dictator somehow who's on his team gets crushed. And Trump is unable or unwilling to bail them out. And everybody that is willing to break the law, cheat, and weaponize the system against Trump, they get they get away with it. McCabe, McComey. McCabe, Comey, Brennan, Clapper, Strzok, Page. Yeah, maybe they get fired, but they get fired, and they, then they get a book deal. Then they get to go on the speaking circuit. You know, Lisa Page, paramour of Strzok. Lisa Page is out there now 
lighting it up on Twitter all the time, telling people about how, you know, she's wronged and aggrieved and, you know, she's playing the victim card. I mean, I, I look, I, I used to work in a similar situation to Strzok and Page. I worked with top secret information. I was in the CIA. And the idea that I would ever have been texting about any president, the kind of stuff that they were texting on work devices, you are creating a work trail. Right. That you would do that and think that that's OK just shows how monumentally reckless and arrogant and stupid these two very senior FBI employees were. And now they're the victims. Now we're supposed to feel so badly for them. I'm sorry. It, it's just too much. It's just too much to ask that that all of a sudden we, we are going to feel badly for what's going on. Remember, they were not prosecuted. I can tell you this struck. He could come forward. He could probably clear General Flynn with with one conversation in the media. Just say, look, we, we told him we told the FBI he didn't lie. And we were just kind of having a chat about stuff. And, you know, maybe he misremembered or whatever. It was no big deal. He could do that if he was an honorable person, but he won't do that. He's not going to do that because then he would lose his hashtag resistance special privileges. And you want to keep those hashtag resistance special privileges if you're if you're in his position, you know, you want to make sure that you're the guy that can get away with this stuff still. Uh, you're the guy who will get the book deal, get on the book tour and, and have the speaking circuit to go to because the left always takes care of anybody who's anti-Trump. So so bar the attorney general assigning people to look into these different things, whether it's whether it's Russia collusion or the prosecution of General Flynn is the New York Times is already writing stories about how this is unsettling the people who work in the government. I thought transparency was a good thing. I was under the impression, because I hear about it all the time from libs who pretend to have principles, I was under the impression that knowing what the government's up to, that holding them accountable for these things uh, was, in fact, a good thing. That we should know if anyone is acting with politicized intent. We should know if someone is being unfairly targeted and prosecuted. But the New York Times is trying to get ahead of what they think is coming here which is that the Durham report is going to show that the entire Russia collusion origin, right, the initial conversations and emails and the initial discussions about, oh, the Trump campaign is working with the Russians to steal this from Hillary was, uh, was a scam uh, done in bad faith and that people involved in it had to know that they were either running on flimsy or no evidence, but they felt like they were doing the right thing because the right thing was whatever's going to help Hillary. That's all that matters. And that Hillary was going to win. If she didn't win, this is where we get the insurance policy. They have this, and maybe they could then oust Trump. They thought Trump was a clear and present danger. And this is the Brennans, the Clappers, the Comeys, the Strucks, the Pages, the, the Yateses. These people thought that President Trump, and these are very powerful government figures. You know, when we start looking at this cabal in DOJ and in the intelligence community, these are not... These are not small fish. These are people running these institutions. And they thought that the president, the incoming uh, President Trump, was such a, a, a dire threat that whatever they had to do was inherently justified. That's what we see playing out here. That was what happened all along. So now you've got Barr saying, let's have, out, let's have fresh eyes, outside eyes, look at some of these situations. So the New York Times is already trying to undermine that trying to get ahead of whatever the doesn't know what's going to come out of this, but wants to get ahead of whatever could come out of this because they know that it can't be it's not going to be good for Democrats. And it's not going to be good, first and foremost, really for the media, 
And the media has been completely, uh, the, the political media in this country has been shamefully, disgracefully complicit in lies for years now. I mean, you should not trust these people. The Democrat media is full of liars. Overwhelmingly, people who are liars and pretend that what they're doing is objective. At least conservative media, you get people that say, I'm a conservative. Here's what I believe. You can make your own judgments about that. And now here's what I want to talk about. Only the Democrat media plays this game of, oh, we're, we're just bringing you the facts, man. We're just here to bring you the truth. We don't have an agenda. We're just like hanging out, you know, being journalists, being journos. It's all a huge lie. It always, I mean, it always has been. It's just more apparent now than it ever was before. But the reason they're trying to get ahead of the attorney general on this is they know that there could be real damage done from the truth getting out about all of this. And also people on the left don't want to believe how easily fooled they were and, and how they were childish, how they were they were really they were really uh, so quick to be swindled by those who had an interest in convincing them things that were not true about this president because they were so invested in Hillary Clinton winning as though that was going to make their lives so much better and everything's going to be fantastic. I and mean, this is over Hillary Clinton, folks. You guys remember that, too. This is the most corrupt, obtuse, self-involved, self-dealing, lying, just a, the worst the, the worst kind of politician. That's who Hillary Clinton is and was. And we're all supposed to be uh, ashamed of voting for Trump instead of her. That's what the left tells us. This is nonsense. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. I talked to some people that say that this coronavirus situation is really, really freaking them out. I talked to other people who say that they think that it's going to just it's going to pass and it's not going to turn into this pandemic. I tend to be I tend to take a more uh, a more calm approach to these situations. I tend to think that the best way to, to handle this is to just look at the numbers, look, look at the statistics and understand that it's probably not going to be something that really affects all this. Producer Brandon, how, how worried are you, though? Because you're, you're now seeing these stories about Chinatown in, in, in New York and in San Francisco and other places losing a lot of business. People will not go to eat in, in these areas because of coronavirus. Zero. I'm worried zero. You're worried zero. There's always swine flu or bird flu or mad yeah, cow disease. This is what... There's always something that's going to kill you. Well, mad cow disease like doesn't kill anybody. That was all. Well, just, yeah, you but, got my point. But yeah, there's always something that's going to hurt you, that's out there. But I mean, I, I just can't live my life like that. Obviously, if it looks like, you know, you walk into a place and all the customers look like lepers, then I'm going to walk back out. But other than, than that, I just live my life. Yeah, so, I can't walk around with the mask. I can't be the. Uh, I, I can't make that. Here I can't make pictures either. I, I would just wonder. By the way, are you? Where are you on cruises? On taking a cruise? I've never done them. I've never done one, but I'm very. I'm very anti-cruise eh, usually. I, I don't care. I mean, if I'm going to be a part of a like a boat, I want to go on a boat. Because I just I read That's these stories. A, right, a boat where you feel like you're kind of. It's smaller and more maneuverable. Not like a giant. Yeah, like I'm enjoying floating city. the ocean. Other than yeah, just I'm in a floating hotel. Because I, I read these stories of people that are quarantined on these cruise ships from when someone comes down with coronavirus, and this is like this is like a nightmare as far as I. I mean, that sounds horrifying to me. I have to imagine, you know, being stuck anywhere with nowhere else to go. But there are worse places I would like to. Th they're not the Chilean miners 
You know, they have, uh, unless they're running out of food. No, no, no. I think they have plenty of food for them. I think they, they, oh. they deliver the food like you're in prison, like they like slide it under the door or something, you know. That's, oh, really? Oh, they, yeah. Like they leave it for you at the door. I think that they're trying to limit human contact. So that's why. But they, they're, as a whole, they're not running out of food. No, not, no, no, no. It's not like that. No. They're not a little tugboats of Grubhub coming up and, and bringing that actually stuff. sounds kind of fun. But, you know, <laughs> get to like sit there on your app. Maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way. If you get stuck on this cruise ship, you know, you got to call and you got to call into work and say, hey. I'm in quarantine, and if you if you're not sick, if you don't have coronavirus, and you're in quarantine for ten days, no, actually, that would get really boring because you can't because you can't go in any of the main any of the group areas, you know, the main areas of the ship. Yeah, right? no, if you're stuck, it's not like you can uh, right play shuffleboard or um, you know any of the fun games. And yeah, I'm sure it does get really boring. But as long as there's a bathroom, there's food. And there's also the stories now about how there's a a a research lab for infectious disease that's very close to the the um, wet seafood market where this initially, they believe, spread. And so there are these stories. There's this real reporting on how maybe this was effectively a man create a human created architect that <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, you know, you think about computer viruses for a long time were just made by people who wanted to mm. mess things up. Computer viruses are not a thing that existed in nature, right? They were created by human beings to mess that's up my, people's computers for no reason. That's my understanding. And you, you have to worry about you know, someone who just likes some people just like to destroy or they like to create they like to create chaos and anxiety and, 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 and a mass is this what you see with the all the different people who are lighting fires in Australia when they're in the midst of the worst you know, the worst brush fires they've ever had or they've had in a very long time. People are lighting fires there when that's going on. You know, so what a weird anyway. species we are. Yeah, I know we got we got stuff going on. I, I'm I'm not I'm not that worried about. It, although I'm trying to think if I should, if it's too late for me to get the just the flu vaccine. It has nothing to do with coronavirus. I know, but I've seen a few people that I know have come down with the flu in the last couple of weeks. And man, I really do not want to get the flu. So maybe I have to get the, maybe I should get the vaccine. I don't know. I've been thinking. I've been thinking about it. I've been thinking about getting the flu vaccine. It might be. Might be worth it. Anyway, coronavirus, I don't think you should be too uh, on edge about it. It's also, it's a slow news cycle right now. And so you get all these different news organizations that they they feel like they can kind of bring you in initially by just saying anything scary about coronavirus. And that's going to effectively you know, cover their traffic load for the day. They're going to bring people into the website or get you to watch TV and say, oh, new fears about, about coronavirus. Um, you know, you go on the Drudge Report, for example, and you see, uh, wait, 14 Americans flown home have the virus, and you've got 3,000 passengers returning to 40 countries. Uh, what's this deadlier reinfection? Oh, this, oh, no, that's garbage. Why does Drudge link from InfoWars? I hate that. I hate that. InfoWars is not a real news source. Why does the Drudge Report do this? Buck, why are you doing that? Why are you talking smack? Bilderberg's Illuminati, they're behind the coronavirus. I know it. I know it. Google it. You know, uh, I just, I wish, I don't know why Drudge does that. It's it's frustrating because sometimes you'll, I'll be sitting here and be like, whoa, that's an, that's a really interesting, that's a really compelling headline. And uh, sure enough, it turns out that it's something linked to Infowars. And when something is linked like that to Infowars, then you know that's something you, should not, should not trust, should not take to the bank. So there's that. I would not worry too much about coronavirus. I feel badly for some of these Chinese restaurants that, that are losing all of this business because people are so afraid of coronavirus. Um, 
the fatality rate, I think, is about 2%. So that's, yeah, that's not much more than what you have with the standard flu. It might even be a little less than what you have with the standard flu. It's right around what you would expect. And so that's why I think that everyone needs to just stay calm. You know, MERS, SARS, these are what, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. SARS is, I don't even know what SARS stands for. That's another viral respiratory infection thing that everyone was freaked out about for a while. It's it's going to be all right. It's going to be we're we're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. I do think it's fair to point out that the climate change alarmists divert resources, de facto they divert scientific resources away from real things like this. I want the smartest. I want the biology and chemistry super nerds of the world, and I mean that in the best way. I want them focused on how to stop diseases. Uh, stop pandemic disease, stop chronic disease. That's what I, I don't want them trying to figure out how they can get advanced, uh, how they can get invited to fancy black tie parties in you know very upscale locations so they can give speeches on climate change. Okay, we we don't. It's a waste. We don't need it. It's not helping anybody. It's not saving any lives. It's all a scam. But this is not a scam. Pandemic disease is real, right? Antibiotic resistance is real. Uh, viral re- respiratory viral infections is something that given the speed of air travel and how much we are now living in an interconnected world, this could increasingly become something that really is a problem that, that needs to be tackled. So, you know, that that's what I would say. I just, I think that we can all take a deep breath about this. Well, maybe it's not the right, the, it's not really the right phrase, but take a shallow breath in an area you know to not have any viral particles lingering in the air. And I think it's going to be all right. I'll, I'll dig into the coronavirus stuff some more on my own the next 24 hours to see if if I really am part of the oh my gosh crowd, because so far I'm not. I think this is going to, I think it's going to blow over. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. It is Roll Call time. President's Day Roll Call edition, which is gonna, just going to be, I think, a normal a normal Roll Call. But it is President's Day. Woo! Aren't there really good sales right now? Should I buy some stuff now? Yeah. I should probably find something. I should engage in a little consumerism today. What's the, what's the producer brand in happy place for, like, if you're going to go buy stuff? What do, you, what do you spend money on that's... To buy stuff, you know, conspicuous consumption. What what do you what do you throw? What do you like to throw the cat? Like me, I spend too much money on food. You know, I'm I eat weird. too much food. And I spend mm-hmm. too much money on food. You know, I'm weird. I like just looking for obscure band T-shirts and uh, concerts. What is the most valuable piece of band paraphernalia you've got? To you, it doesn't have to be monetary value, but like, what's the thing that you're either most proud of or that's most valuable? Uh, it was cool to have a GNR shirt signed by Slash and Duff. Met them uh, outside a Velvet Revolver show back in the day. But that's very cool. Yeah, and just uh, how did Velvet poster. Revolver do as a band? Successful. That first uh, that first album really was a success. Huh. Interesting. Because wasn't there also um, 
Oh no! Was that what? Well, what was the Chinese? Uh, what was it called? You know, I'm assuming you mean Chinese democracy. Yes. You know, what was that? That was uh, Axel when he came back with everybody else that wasn't in the GNR that you remember. That was like 15 years in the making, and he's, you know, millions. Of, one, probably the most expensive album ever made. How did it do? It it did well enough, but I don't. It couldn't live up to the hype. I can't remember. Sing, do you? Remember, I don't even know any songs from it. So uh, unless you're a nerd like me, you. Wouldn't. I was going over like songs last night on Spotify from uh, when I was in college, and it's really interesting. Um, most of the music that I think does really well is highly. And for the last, I can at least speak for the last twenty years, is highly forgettable. Yeah, it's highly forgettable. It's all very derivative, and it's not. You look at the names that that pop up for, especially when I was in college, which was two thousand to two thousand and four. It's a lot of um, Beyonce songs that I think all kind of sound the same. Uh, you have some. Uh, there was an, a period where Usher was really big in there, where he had like the number one song for I think two thousand four was an Usher song. You look at these, and like no one still listens to this music today. That's what I think is so interesting. This stuff all feels very perishable, whereas music. I can think of some bands from the 90s, certainly bands from the 80s, where people will still listen to it and think that it's really great today. I feel like music doesn't have as long of a shelf life anymore. Oh, agreed. It has an At expiration date. At least the top 40 date. stuff. Yeah, it has like an expiration date. It's going to go. So that's to bring it back around. That's what I spend my money on since all these legacy acts charge so much for their concert tickets. Like, am I going to go see Rage Against the Machine? They're not really raging against the machine with these ticket prices. Because they're yeah. very expensive, so that's. Have you seen them live before, by the way? No, uh, no. But so I, I listen I to their music to. when I work out a lot. Actually, I think that they're very good workout. They're a very good they, workout. Band. They are. They, yeah. You're okay with their. Uh, no, and their politics are horrific, obviously. <laughs> but I'm, I'm well aware you of the, the music. A bunch though. of they're a bunch of rich commies, which is what you get with <laughs> communists in the West. They love being rich, but they want everyone else to be a communist. All right, uh, roll call. I said it was happening. It is happening. Let's see what we get here, Alex. I'm 6'5", and usually by the exit rope, the reason that it has, uh, always has the leg room. However, if the person in front of me wants to recline, as I happen to be in a regular seat, they can't. My knees keep their seat from leaning back. It's fun to watch them try to figure out what is happening and then see their face as they realize they have been, uh, they have been being an ass and jamming their seat into someone. I smile and wave. They don't try again. Well, Alex, congrats on being 6'5". That's very nice for you. And, uh, yeah, I guess if your knees get in the way. But this is why I just I don't understand. I guess we, we need to have an airline. It seems like such a business opportunity, but I don't know anything about the airline business, really. But just to have an airline where there's no first-class seats, no business-class seats, but just everyone's in, like, a reasonably comfortable seat with a reasonable amount of legroom, and it is going to be more expensive than flying Southwest or some of these crappy uh you know, super cheap carriers out there. You know, United, I think, is terrible. Whenever I fly United, I'm always, it's always a bad, it's always a bad feel. It's a bad feeling when you're like, oh, God, I got a United United flight ahead of me. I think Delta, people tell me, who know these things is the, is the way to go. Andrew writes, hi, Buck, you're the man. Thank you, Andrew. I, I do appreciate that. You had mentioned the Batman movies the other day. I have seen all of the Batman movies, and I must say the best one is still the 1989 original with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson. That came out when I was three, but since the special effects weren't as advanced as they are today, they had to rely on a good storyline. A great storyline can make a great movie over special effects. FYI, five favorite movies are 
Major League, Beetlejuice, Big Lebowski, Happy Gilmore, Big Trouble in Little China. That's a really eclectic list, I must say. Um, I would say, I mean, Big Trouble in Little China is very entertaining. It's not a top five movie for me. Major League is very good for what it is. The Big Lebowski is entertaining. Happy Gilmore is funny, but I mean, I've never seen Beetlejuice. Actually, is it good? I've never seen Beetlejuice. I'm. I've never been more disappointed in you. I can imagine. It it's is. on Broadway right now too. Yeah, but go, go see the movie. It's fantastic. Is it really? Oh yeah, it's probably Tim Burton's finest, honestly, and just great performances uh, all around. Oh. Michael Keaton and. Winona Ryder, Alec huh. Baldwin, when he wasn't uh, so crazy. Interesting. All right, maybe maybe I will check that out. I, I got to say, I've, n- I've never seen I don't even know what the storyline is. I just know there's... Wow, okay. Yeah, I know, I've, like, I have vague memories of the, some of the commercials or the trailers back in the day, but I really don't know. Because as a kid, I even watched the cartoon because he was so successful. There was a cartoon, really? yeah. A Beetlejuice cartoon, huh? Yeah, it's just a, you know, it's about a dead guy and the living. That's all you need to know for now. Okay. All right. Nothing. This isn't like Train to Busan, though, right? It's not going to terrify. No. Me. I mean, it's a dark sense of humor, but it's the same thing that Tim Burton did with the first Batman, or the second Batman, even. Just like that kind of dark nightmare before Christmas. He has that kind of. Did you Did you recommend that I watch Train to Busan? By the way, or yeah, you, yeah, it yeah. Is, it's good enough that I might actually like it. I like the Strain a lot. I think we talked about that. Right. I haven't seen that, but if you you should see that, you would like that. Not a vampire guy. Is you're not a vampire, vampire guy. I feel nah. like that's like it's zombies. like it's not really. It's like vampire slash pandemic disease. It kind of melds the two ideas together. So the vampires are effectively like a disease. All right, I'll have to because I just finished catching up with Better Call Saul, so I have to I'll have to do that. I mean, I might go back to that just based on your recommendation. Although right now I've got the new Narco season and the new Peaky Blinder season to get through, and those are both. Those are both amazing shows. Okay, fair enough. Although Peaky Blinders, people point out, and this is true. It is kind of hard to understand what they're saying sometimes. That's how I feel. But if you're okay with subtitles, which knowing you, you are. Yeah, sure. Uh, that's Train to Busan. That's one of the best zombie films ever. Have you seen the uh, the Korean film that just won the best picture? No, I have not. I want to, though. Yeah, Parasite? Yeah. I'm going to check it out. People say that it's very. That it's got some very good stuff. Yeah. I'll see. And I wanted to love 1917 as a movie. It was okay. I mean, it's a B plus. It's good. It's not like it's not good, but it's not a. It's not Saving Private Ryan. It's mm. not a war movie you want to watch like over and over and getting more things from it. And it's not really that good. And Joker, we both discussed. I, I like Joker a lot for what it was, but I don't. I don't know if I'm ever going to go back and watch Joker again. It was kind of a one and done for me. So. I, I forgot where I heard this point before, but obviously Heath Ledger won for the Joker, and now uh, Phoenix did. Uh, so how Joaquin Phoenix is? So is everyone who plays that part? Gonna get because it, it's that role of Joker that's so enticing. So what's gonna happen if it is? I'm assuming it's gonna be Joaquin Phoenix next time. But it's like I don't know. It seems like that's just like a perfect role to win an award. Jared yeah. Leto screwed it up, but <laughs> that's yeah, about well, it. No, not not surprising. Um, Brett, next up here. How do you live in New York City with your high level of noise sensitivity? I'm not being critical. Just a question. Sounds like you need uh, need to live. Uh, so far in the country, your best friend would be a pig. Not anywhere. Um, okay, keep up the good work. Love your podcast. Listen daily. Thank you, Brett. Where, where, where I live is actually, I live very high up in a building. It's actually very quiet. So my apartment is quite quiet. Um, street noise is not really an issue for me. 
But I also the certain noise, certain street noise doesn't really bother me, like the faint, you know, the faint occasional car honking or something. Like you kind of get used to that in New York, and that doesn't really uh, that doesn't really bother me much. So I don't think of the city as very noisy. Do you do you live in a noisy or quiet neighborhood? Uh, I live in Woodside, Queens. Um, if there's an ambulance, obviously going by, but for yeah. the most part, no, nah, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. I sleep well. The only thing that drives me nuts is car alarms. I have fantasies whenever I hear a car alarm go off of being able to, if it goes off for like 30 seconds or less, fine. But when it keeps going off and keeps going off, I have fantasies of taking a baseball bat to that car. <laughs> it drives me completely You're insane. not the only one, I'm sure. Yeah. It's like, what is this doing? This is accomplishing nothing. Car alarms are the worst, the worst invention ever. April. Buck, not only was Band of Brothers an incredible miniseries, but Damian Lewis and other UK actors did an awesome job with their American accents. April, I don't know, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta check this one out again. I actually haven't seen Band of Brothers. I saw a couple of episodes of it, but I have to go back and check it out again. You know, I, I'm sorry. I just find that UK actors they think that their accents are, are, are American accents are great, and very rarely do I agree with that assessment. I think, generally speaking, British actors think they sound like Americans, but they sound like British guys who are trying to talk like an American talks. And that's not how we speak. So, Sam, dear Buck, before she drops out of the race, I need to tell you how much I love your Elizabeth Warren impression. It is spot on. It always makes me laugh because it makes me imagine Minnie Mouse trying to talk with a New England accent. I also need to point out that nobody thinks that that's how a part Oklahoman, part Cherokee accent should sound. Well, Sam, I'm glad you like that impersonation. I feel like I should get on TikTok and start doing some of these, you know? Well, Elizabeth Warren, on TikTok, I could put on some glasses and a sweater vest and always wear a black shirt and black pants, but with a nice, colorful sweater vest over it. And we're going to tell the rich and the powerful that Elizabeth Warren may be a millionaire who's really connected and is a senator, but... She's going to help the little guy. That's what we're going to tell them, sure. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Hey, Buck, I just finished your Thursday podcast. Great show. I want to let you know that Chris Hemsworth, Thor from the Marvel Comic Universe, is actually going to play Hulk Hogan in an upcoming Netflix biopic uh, also, a while back, you talked about Vince Vaughn. He is excellent in his recent movie with Mel Gibson called Dragged Across Concrete. If you're looking for a conservative perspective on cops effectively catching criminals in this politically correct day and age, I think you'll enjoy it. It's a slow burn, but well worth it. Keep up the great work. Shields high. Well, thank you, Matthew. I've never even heard of Dragged Across Concrete, so I'll have to check that out. I'm glad you enjoyed Thursday's show. Uh, the rest of this week, we'll have shows with we'll, we'll be covering even more territory. Today is just the the journos take today off, so it's a slow news day. So I was able to kind of just lean into some topics that I felt like leaning into, but I'm sure there'll be a frenzy of stuff as of as of tomorrow to uh, to get through to work through. And uh, I've never heard of Dragged Across Concrete, but I'm certainly down to check it out. I like Vince Vaughn in the stuff that he's in. I just think that he kind of always plays Vince Vaughn. I haven't really seen him ever stretch himself as an actor in a way that made me think that he was doing anything other than like, oh, here's Vince Vaughn in this movie, doing what he always does. Josh, uh, I've been a listener for a couple of years now, mostly on podcasts, and I've heard you mention the bear of yours many times, 
but have yet to gotten to experience it firsthand. If we're really going to do this squaring off between socialism and capitalism, what better time to have a special guest appearance? Bring Commie Bear back. Love your show. I truly think you are the next rush. Keep up the great work. Shields high. Josh, thank you so much, man. Commie Bear... Maybe we do need. I mean, it's just the, the, so. I'll, I'll be honest with you guys. Comedy Bear was always very popular in the old show. People liked it. The the segments we did with Comedy Bear always got a lot of listenership and everything else. But it's just so hard to pull off even sixty seconds of that kind of a comedy sketch. So maybe I'm just complaining about how much work it is. So that then when I start doing it, you guys will really appreciate it more and realize that it's a labor of love, and that I want this audience to always feel like they're getting the absolute maximum for their time. And so I do everything I can to make them as happy as I can, including bringing them the bear when I can. Um, Let us see now. We have more of the roll call. Gregor, Bloomberg Clinton 2020, more gray matter than any deplorable. Gregor, I don't really... Didn't really, I don't really catch what you're putting out there, but thank you for sending it. I appreciate the message. Maybe I'm just off today and not, not understanding exactly what's going on. Brandon, here we go. Whoa, shields high, brother Buck. Today was a good day in Virginia. We were able to put enough pressure on the Senate to kill HB 961, the assault weapons and high capacity mag ban, at least for the next year. Little, um, Marky Levine, the author of The Garbage Bill, had this to say in a last-ditch effort before the vote was taken. If you like your suppressor, you can keep your suppressor. And in a very condescending way said, if you're using these guns for self-defense in your home, I guess you'll only be in trouble if 13 people come to burglarize your home in the middle of the night. His arrogance helped to fuel the flame of liberty in all Virginians' hearts. This is just the beginning of our conservative awakening in Virginia. Lord willing, you'll see Virginia turn red for Trump this coming November. Thank you for all you do, brother. Airborne all the way. Well, thank you, Brandon. I very much appreciate you writing in. And, uh, yeah, Virginia is not going to have a, uh, a a assault weapons ban anytime soon. Steve, we're all trapped by the irresponsibility, greed, and corruption of our leaders, past and present. Um, the more money the Fed prints, the less viable it becomes. Eventually, it won't be worth anything. Steve, you're kind of bumming me out, buddy, but thank you for writing in. I appreciate it. Matthew, Buck, I simultaneously laughed and vomited myself into the breakdown lane here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, when you did your impression uh, of Warren after she crushes on the rock's massive pecs. And that's just something because as a senior intel analyst, uh, I've seen some some funny stuff, but your impression of Warren was the most, the most hilarious and made it worth it. Shields high. Well, thank you, Matthew. I'm so glad you appreciated it, man. Thanks for writing in. Nice to have folks listen down in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and I promise to continue to do some silly accents to make this show fun, because we can't just do political deep dives all the time. That's going to be it for our President's Day show. Notice how I'm here and doing a show, a fresh show for all of you, because I love you all so much. Please pass the buck. Do me that favor. Tell somebody to download the Buck Saxon Show who is new to the show. We'll be back tomorrow. Shields high.